At the turn of the millennium, the National Gallery in London put on a special exhibition featuring images of Christ called Seeing Salvation. Now, it might surprise you that a secular institution chose to mark 2,000 years since the birth of Christ in such a religious way. But the reaction from the public will shock you even more. Because in its short 10-week run, the exhibition attracted some 360,000 visitors. The curator, Gabriel Finaldi, described the reaction as truly phenomenal. He tells how in its final weeks, the queues grew so long that they overflowed the gallery and spilled out onto a busy Trafalgar Square. But what was most interesting to Finaldi was the unprecedented emotional response that the exhibition, um, the reaction to it from the public. Finaldi was overwhelmed by 279 letters from visitors each describing how the art had moved them in profound ways. One letter in particular stood out. It was from a woman who described herself as non-religious. But she had experienced an immediate and powerful change after seeing the exhibition. She began her letter by describing how On her way to the gallery, she had met a homeless man on the strand. And as usual, she had paid him little attention and just went on with her day. But during the exhibition, she was struck by one particular image. This image was different from the sophisticated and impressive canvases that adorned the gallery walls. It was a sculpture called Christ on the Cold Stone by an unknown artist. The statue was simple, it was unpretentious, it stood alone at the gallery entrance, and it was unprotected from the many grubby hands that, like hers, undoubtedly traced the curve of the figure's dejected shoulders. And like those who reportedly draped their coats over his naked frame as if to shelter him from the cold, the woman was filled with an immense, compassionate sight of this lonely Christ figure, seated on a rock awaiting his crucifixion. But it was only afterwards, on the journey home, that the woman appreciated the profound effect that it had on her. It was when she looked again at that same man on the strand that the image of the vulnerable Christ flashed into her imagination once more. But this time, she couldn't ignore him. This time she was compelled to speak. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. You know, sometimes we need a little help to understand these words from John's gospel. Sometimes it takes a drawing or a sculpture or a poem or a song to shed fresh glimpses of light on this most holy of mysteries, that God became man. Because if we're honest, it's far too easy to let these beautiful words from John's epic prologue to wash over us without allowing the living word to seep into our marrow, to allow the living word to inhabit our hearts. We hear these words from John time and time again, in Christmas is past, present, and no doubt Christmas is still to come, 
But how often are we truly changed by the profundity of what we hear? Of course, this isn't a modern problem. In verses 10 and 11 of John's gospel, we read how Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which were his own, but his own did not receive him. In other words, Jesus came, and those who had been waiting missed him. Those who already knew something about him, who should have been able to spot the signs and connect the dots, missed him. And so the question begs asking, have we missed him too? This might seem a bit of a ridiculous question. After all, how could we possibly have missed Jesus? Christmas has been everywhere for weeks. Our homes, our workplaces, even our church has been festooned with bubbles and tinsel and nativity scenes, all to celebrate the birth of Christ. It's been impossible to look anywhere without seeing Jesus. But of course, John's question to us isn't, have you seen Jesus? It's, have you recognized him? Have you received him? Has an encounter with the incarnate God changed your imagination? Has it compelled you to think about how God coming into the world as a man changes everything? Probably not. As I mentioned, Emma and I are just back from a few days in New York. And I can tell you, it's quite a challenge to recognize Jesus in the glitzy lights and the razzmatazz of the Big Apple. But you know, sometimes inspiration comes in the most unlikely of places, even Times Square, believe it or not. A recent addition to the lights and giant billboards is a sign that reads the name Colbert. It runs down the side of the iconic building where the Late Show is recorded. Now, if you don't know, Stephen Colbert is the new host of perhaps the world's most iconic talk show. Now, seeing his name displayed in such an ostentatious way in the heart of this cathedral to fame and fortune, it seemed anachronistic to me, and I'll explain why. You see, in addition to his day job as a famous talk show host, Stephen Colbert is a Sunday school teacher. And so I was being very judgmental and cynical about the obvious commercialism of it all. And Colbert's name called me back to something he had said about Christmas a few years ago when he was still host of his satirical Colbert report. He was responding to annual hysteria from conservative pundits, mostly on Fox News, who like to claim that war has been declared on Christmas in America. On this particular occasion, they were in a real flap because, and wait for this, Starbucks had removed the words Merry Christmas from their coffee cups. Christmas would never be the same again. Well, Colbert suggested if war really has been declared on Christmas, then perhaps it was time that Christians just surrendered. Perhaps the best solution would be to take Christ out of Christmas altogether. His argument was simple and pointed. If the real Jesus told us to love and serve the poor, but we're more interested in glorifying his name on coffee cups, then we're not really interested in following Jesus at all. And we should stop invoking his name in the most commercial of holidays. 
Well, biting satire never had it so good. But Colbert's point was simply echoing the words of John. Jesus has come and continues to come to that which are his own. To people who should have a pretty decent chance of recognizing who he is. And yet, we receive him not. And you know, we might be right. Because the truth is, we often acknowledge Jesus at this time of year. But we don't let him dwell within us long enough to really change our fixed imaginations. We don't allow him to rearrange our priorities, our work habits, our relationships with our family, our friends, our work colleagues. Christmas should be a time for reflecting, reflecting on the incarnate Jesus. But finding time to truly reflect on the wonder and majesty of Christ's birth at this time of year is almost impossible. You see, that's why I think this first Sunday of the new year is so important. The lectionary brings us back to these magnificent words from John's gospel. Just before our Christmas tree is packed away for another year, so that we get a second chance to meditate and to think about what the incarnation means for us and for our world. And so that's what I would like us to do this morning. I want us to spend just a little bit of time sitting with this mystical, wonderful poem that we find at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Now, we may not understand it any better by the end, but I pray that as we listen to his words again, we will be open to the wonder and mystery of the greatest miracle of all. Now, we have acknowledged that the doctrine of the Incarnation is not easy, to say the least. And you know, I'm not sure John's prologue makes it any easier. The language is lofty. It's mystical. The words transport us beyond time and space, to things beyond our comprehension. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made, was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light was the life of all mankind. This is heady stuff. It's beautiful, yes, but it's dense, and it's difficult to comprehend. And you know, there's always a danger that this complexity can distract us from the true message. That we try so hard to untangle the eloquent but mystifying words that we miss the true word that John is talking about. You see, we should not be waylaid by this lofty prose. Because in many ways it's all window dressing to John's central point that comes in verse 14. Because here John tells us the amazing truth that this word, this universe-making, cosmic, transcendent, timeless word became meat. The God of all creation became skin and bones like you and me. Of course, this doesn't make any sense to us. It runs against the grain of all that we think a God should be. Friedrich Buchner says the incarnation is untheological. It's unsophisticated. 
It's undignified. Because if we were to imagine a God, it would not be like this. We only need to look at the gods of the ancient world. Transcendent, omnipotent, untouchable. That is how we imagine our gods, not like this. Not a God who empties himself, becoming weak and vulnerable. Not a God who suffers humiliation and death. But as Buechner explains, this is the problem with the human imagination. We often think we are more spiritual than God. This came up in this church recently during one of David Glass's evenings on the new atheism. David remarked how it's not the idea of a creator that most upsets new atheists. No, it's the idea that such a creator could demean himself to the level of we mere mortals. But we shouldn't be too scoffing of the new atheist because there's something of this in the way we can think of God too. The truth is that we sometimes prefer to keep God out there in the beginning as all-powerful, transcendent, beyond time and space because that makes sense to us. We prefer to imagine God's glory in terms of the splendor of his majesty, not his closeness and his humanity. Of course, in one sense, this is perfectly good and right. God is resplendent in his power and greatness. We only need to look out at the universe to understand this. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. But I think we must take heed of the journalist and poet Edwin Muir, who says that the word is made flesh, and we, the church, make him word again. God is not abstract. The true extent of his glory is that he became one like us. He is personal, so much so that he takes on the weakness and frailty of our humanity. God enters into our suffering. He weeps with us. It is revealing that John does not actually use the word glory until verse 14, when the word is made flesh. Glory is not used to describe his creating magnificence in verse 1, or verse 2, or verse 3. No, it's only when the word has skin put on it, when blood is pumping through his veins that God's glory is recognized. Interestingly, I think there's an allusion to Psalm, 13, Psalm 19 here. When describing God's glory, the psalmist goes on to praise him for pitching a tent for the sun in the heavens. Now, it can't be a coincidence that John, ever fond of wordplay, describes the Son of God, that, that is Jesus, as making his dwelling among us, a phrase that translate, lit, translates literally as pitching his tent. Well, maybe what John is trying to indicate is that the word becoming flesh reveals the glory of God in a way that is far more profound than is putting the very stars in the sky. For John, the full extent of God's glory, the unparalleled expression of his majesty and power, is best expressed when he humbles himself. This is what the Apostle Paul understood when he wrote his beautiful hymn to the Incarnation in Philippians 2. 
Words are on the screen here. He writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Christ's glory is revealed in his humility, in his inherently self-sacrificial nature. But there's something even more profound here that we might just miss if we pass over these words too quickly. This point has been made by Cornelius Plantinga, a theologian I've mentioned before from this pulpit. And he explains that many modern translations of these verses sometimes point us in the wrong direction. Often they're translated like this. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, humbled himself. Now let me explain. Reading it this way suggests that Jesus was indeed the incarnate God, very God of God, begotten, not created. But even so, despite this, he let himself become human. And Plantinga argues that such a reading is in fact wrong because it makes the incarnation a concession, an exception to the divine rule. It's like saying Stephen Colbert is a world-famous talk show host. Even so, he teaches Sunday school. You see, we put it that way because we don't ordinarily expect a person like him to do something like that. And that's how we so often read Philippians 2. But Paul is not saying that it was despite being God that Jesus gave it all up. Paul is saying that it was because Jesus was God that he humbled himself. Now this is a subtle point, but it's an important one. Because according to Paul, God by his very nature can be nothing else than one who humbles himself out of love for humanity. I think this is why John structures his prologue the way he does. It's only in the word made flesh that we see the full glory of God, full of grace and truth. You see, having seen the face of Jesus, having heard his voice, having witnessed his death and marveled at his resurrection, John was compelled to imagine the glory of God afresh. Jesus is the final revelation of God to his creation. And him him coming in human form turns everything we have believed and understood upside down and inside out. Karl Barth, the great 20th century theologian, put it like this. We may believe that God can and must be absolute in contrast to all that is relative. Exalted in contrast to all that is lowly. Active in contrast to all suffering, inviolable in contrast to all temptation, transcendent in contrast to all imminence, and therefore in contrast, divine in contrast to everything human. In short, that he can and must be wholly other. But such beliefs are shown to be quite untenable and corrupt and pagan by the fact that God does and is this in Jesus Christ. You know, it's perhaps little wonder that his own did not recognize him. 
He was so incomprehensibly different to what we imagine an all-powerful God to be. So offensive to our religious sensibilities. But if we had paid attention to how God has revealed himself in history, it shouldn't be all that surprising at all. Is this not the same God who chose two childless old-age pensioners to populate the stars? The same God who called a murderer and a fugitive to free his people from slavery in Egypt? The same God who picked an insignificant shepherd boy from all the warriors of the land to be king of his nation? Time and time again, God has revealed his glory in the most unlikely of places. Time and time again, he has challenged us to think bigger about him than our limited imaginations will allow. I'm almost at the end. But I ask you to bear with me because we have one final question that begs asking. If the incarnation reimagines our idea of God and his glory, well, what then does it have to say about our humanity? I don't know if you heard the so-called singing astronaut Commander Chris Hadfield on Desert Island Disc recently. He was asked if his experience in space had impacted his faith. Now, Hadfield is quite circumspect when discussing his personal beliefs, and his response was quite ambiguous, but it struck a chord with me. He said that he wished everyone could see the earth from space so they could see how patient it looks. How patient the world looks. Well, perhaps it's because I'm a father now that this word holds particular relevance for me. I have been well-schooled in patience this past year and a half. But when I think of how poorly human beings behave, when I think of how we abuse the precious life on this planet, I wonder how much more patient God needs to be to look upon our fallen, broken humanity. You see, for me, this is the real miracle of the Incarnation. Jesus, by becoming man, makes it resoundingly clear that God has judged us supremely worthwhile. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this infinitely harder to comprehend than a paradox of God made man. The incarnation is God's love letter to humanity. Jesus did not come as a superhuman. He did not come as some homo sapien 2.0. He did not even come in human disguise. John tells us he came as flesh. And you know, he didn't choose these words by accident. As Karl Barth again explains, flesh is specifically humanity after the fall. In other words, Jesus came as we are with all the weaknesses and frailty that comes with being human. Our susceptibility to fear, our propensity towards doubt, our vulnerability to temptation. Jesus did not become symbolically man. John tells us that he was human in every sense of the word. And why? Because somehow, despite our best efforts, we are worthwhile. You see, the word becoming flesh 
not only changes how we imagine God, it fundamentally shifts our idea of what it means to be human. We're often mistaken about humanity. Either we indulgently dismiss ourselves as a lost cause, destined to mess up the world, or we arrogantly think that we are self-sufficient, the masters of the universe. But that's not what John chapter 1 tells us. The incarnation of Jesus declares that we are children of God and we have to grow up in his likeness. You see, Jesus is the most unambiguous demonstration of what it means to be made in God's image. In Jesus, we see humankind's potential. We can look to him and think, yes, that's what a human is. In our messy, juxtaposing world of technological wonder and human misery, we need to keep alive the mystery and truth that is revealed in the incarnation. That as the church fathers and mothers affirmed, the word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who did by his transcendent love become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Now, if we don't find this truth at Christmas time, then perhaps we should be prepared to find light in other quarters. It might be a piece of sculpture, like Christ on the cold stone. Or it might be a poem, like the one I discovered just this week. Now, it was to be printed in your order of service, but it is on the screen. Let me finish with these words. Perhaps it will help you to imagine a new the glory of God revealed in the word made flesh. Do I have it on the screen? It's called the mystery of the incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that all cracks the mind shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature, vainly sure that it and no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. Amen.